Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of She Med. Today, I'm here with Nicole Franks. So can you t give us just a short introduction about yourself? Tell us about your specialty area and how long you've been practicing medicine? Sure. Um, so I am an emergency medicine physician. I have been in practice since 2002. I completed my residency training um, at Emory University um, School of Medicine, uh, Department of Emergency Medicine. Um, preceding that, I graduated from Morehouse School of Medicine in uh, 1999. Um, I, after residency, I joined the faculty at Emory and I've been on faculty ever since. Uh, so that's about coming up on 20 years or so now as a faculty member. Um, so yeah, that's about how long I've been in practice. <laughs> so tell us why um, emergency medicine? Um, did you always know you wanted to go into emergency medicine? No, actually emergency medicine found me. So um, I am, here's my story, I guess. Um, I, I've always wanted to be a physician. I honestly really don't know what else I would have done. I just from young remember always wanting to be a physician and I couldn't really tell you why. Mm -hmm. I, I tell people that my parents probably whispered this in my ear when I was asleep at night because I think <laughs> I was brainwashed. But anyway, um, that was what I was interested in really early. Um, so I'm, I'm an athlete. I played basketball and volleyball and ran track and did all that um, in school. And so um, I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon because I wanted to take care of athletes. And that's at the time all I knew, the only path I knew to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and so that aspiration pretty much stayed consistent until I got to college. And as I was matriculating at Spelman College, that's when I started to learn a little bit more about other pathways um, of taking care of athletes. So mm -hmm. another pathway was really doing a sports medicine fellowship. So you could you had other options besides being an orthopedic surgeon. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, Primary care in the in the 90s was a really big discussion. I wanted to, I, it was it was attractive to me because I wanted to take care of everybody in the family. I, I thought I would enjoy that. Um, and um, so I, I kind of got caught up in um, really the, the sort of push for more expanding primary care physicians. And then there was an opportunity to serve in the public health corps you know, those options to pay back loans. So all those things were attractive to me. And, and because it was another path to ultimately what I thought I wanted to do at the time was be a sports medicine physician, um, family medicine as primary care physician seemed like a, a good path for me. Um, and so then I, as I started matriculating through Morehouse School of Medicine, it got to my, my third year in, in medical school. And um, that's when you start doing your clinical rotations. So your real sort of immersive experience uh, within the various specialties um, that you learn about. Mm -hmm. And um, I, what I, I, my first rotation was OBGYN. And um, I, I very much liked our, that rotation because it was in the hospital. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't a big fan of surgery. I loved delivering babies, but I, did not aspire to take care of moms. Okay. Um, and so um, 
but I very much enjoyed that rotation. I learned a lot. Mm -hmm. And following that, I think I did psychiatry, which was, which I liked. I didn't love it, but I liked it. I didn't feel challenged in any way dealing with uh, patients with various mental health um, um, problems and um, how their moods and things were labeled. That didn't phase me really. So, but I thought it was interesting. Um, and then I did um, surgery. And again, I very much liked the hospital. I even liked the aspect of being part of a team. The surgery, <laughs> surgery was a team thing um, when you're, you're on a team. So I really liked that. Um, but I didn't like surgery. I didn't like, I liked doing the procedures, but I didn't like standing up for hours in surgery. That was <laughs> not really what I wanted to do. But I liked the technical aspect of surgery and doing procedures. I very much like that. Um, so here I am now probably coming into my next rotation, which was family medicine. So I was real, really excited. I really wanted to do my best and impress the folks in the family medicine department. But what I realized is that a lot of family medicine was um, working in the clinic and it was really management of, it was either preventive care or chronic care management. And I didn't really realize that. And I didn't really like that. I didn't like the environment. I very much liked the patient populations that I took care of, you know, from babies to geriatrics. Um, but I just didn't like, okay, let me see you in a couple months and you come back. Okay, let me see you in another month. So let's tweak this and I'll see you. I didn't, I didn't like that. I, I couldn't articulate it at the time, but I really wanted to do something in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of that, um, so when I had that sort of revelation, um, talking to one of my medical school classmates who, who actually had been on the same rotation with me. So she knew what I liked, I knew what she liked. We, we kind of went through it to, and learned together. And she said to me, you know, I really think you would like emergency medicine. And I didn't know anything about emergency medicine. We were at a, a student national medical association conference. Um, and I'll never forget that I went to listen to Dr. Thea James, who is an emergency medicine physician in Boston. And I went to hear her talk and it was just a career talk really it was a, I'm an emergency medicine physician. Let me tell you all about it. Mm -hmm. And I was just, I was enthralled. That was really my first, ex first exposure. And I was like, yeah, I think I like that. I think that's what I want to do. And so then my classmate, my medical school classmate said, well, you need to meet this person when we get back. Cause she had met her at some, I don't know, conference or, or talk or something she went to. So really, you know, and, and that person invited her to come into the ED and just observe and shadow. And she said, I really think you enjoy it. And so, and so that's what I did. I made contact with that person. Her name is Cheryl Heron, and she's been my mentor ever since. And so um, once I had the opportunity to really go and, and shadow and really see what an emergency physician does, um, I knew that that was really the type of physician I wanted to be. Um, and, and so that's how, how I got to emergency medicine. So when I talk to students about what they want to be when they grow up, especially in the context of medicine, I think you have to know yourself and you have to know the type of physician in the life that they have and make sure that's what you want. 
Um, and the best way to do that is to shadow or go see um, as best you can. I realize that may not be everyone's opportunity, but I do think there's a lot of intentional programming out there for pipelines. And so they really wanna expose um, everyone early, as early as possible um, to the various uh, careers in medicine. So that's pretty long-winded uh, answer, but <laughs> um, try to throw a little few pearls in there. Um, haven't answered that question quite often in the past. No, that's really helpful. Um, and it's inspiring to me that it was more so your calling and not just something you chose, it chose you. Um, so that was very interesting to me. So I know earlier you alluded to the fact that you don't, you didn't exactly know why you wanted to be a doctor or you, it just was something that you knew that needed to happen. Um, what experiences throughout your career affirm that you made the right choice? Well, so I'd have to say, I mean, I, I enjoy math and science. I think that that's pretty key. I, um, I attended um, Spelman. Actually, I was a, a NASA scholar. So I was on a scholarship for women in science and engineering. Mm -hmm. And, you know, preceding that, um, my summers were consistently spent at Xavier University in their summer science academy. Mm -hmm. And um, it was learning, but it was fun learning. I had a great time and looked forward to each program every summer. But it was specifically geared, it was a pipeline program to develop um, um, really African-American kids in, um, for health careers. And so that started it and I got to Spelman, I was on this scholarship and I thought I wanted to be, I thought I was gonna be a biology major because at the time that's what you were, you were either a biology major or chemistry major traditionally when you were in a pre-med track. Mm -hmm. Well, I was on the scholarship and that wasn't an option <laughs> because it was a graduate, graduate medical education track or an engineering track. Um, you couldn't be biology pre-med. And so I made a choice to be a chemistry graduate medical education track. And it really at the time didn't, didn't phase me because I knew that that was an alternative route to going to medical school, whether I, and at the time I didn't know if I would really like engineering um, or not because, or, or even graduate sciences, just because I didn't have exposure there. Most of my exposure had been health careers, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, matriculating through uh, that program, um, it entailed having a summer experience, work experience at a NASA space center. Mm -hmm. So my, um, I actually, so I, so I'll take a step back. I enjoyed being a chemistry major. That was the right major for me. Biology was not the right major for me. Mm -hmm. I, um, liked, I, you know, biology majors hate organic chemistry. That was my favorite class. Um, it, it was a little bit, it was much more math-based and logic-based, whereas biology was more memorization story-based. That's the best way I can put it. And it's just the way your mind thinks, um, what, what is more attractive to you. I mean, biology is necessary, but um, at that time, that was an interesting major to me. So I was, I was glad I was a chemistry major. Mm -hmm. um, and then that, that proved to help me later because one of my experiences at, at, uh, at NASA was I got to run um, my own experiments in one of the labs. Mm -hmm. And my experience that summer afforded me an opportunity in medical school. So I was in medical school during the time that the Olympics came to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And the medical school students were offered the opportunity to work in the drug lab, the drug testing lab. And most of the medical students um, because their background wasn't analytical, mm -hmm. um, 
they were sort of doing the preset specimen processing work, which is like, you know, basically you're handling the urine specimens and divide them up, you know, like just, you know, process work. And because I had this experience running my own experiments and using the analyzers, I was able to work in the back in the lab with all the graduate students who were employed. So that was cool. Um, but so that, but that's like my really big story around how my chemistry major really made a difference, <laughs> I guess, in terms of my experiences. Right. Um, so I don't regret it. It was it was a very cool experience to do that. Um, but I really didn't leverage sort of chemistry. It, I didn't teach chemistry. I didn't work anymore in any other labs, but, but that one experience, that experience at, at NASA and then with the drug testing lab. Um, but, but what, I, what, what I can say about my reflection on being a wise scholar is all my friends were engineers. Mm -hmm. And I think as I would talk about what I do now, I actually have engineers working for me. So I very much understand and appreciate the problem solving aspect, but I couldn't articulate that I liked that or really knew how to do that back then. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so how I, so my experiences are how, how I developed in medicine, that sort of got me through, you know, through college. And as I got to Morehouse, even in college, I was going over to Morehouse and sort of doing their enrichment experiences, being exposed to some of their programming um, and, and um, so translated really well over there. And I, and I enjoyed my time at, at Morehouse very much. It was the right school for me at the right time. Mm -hmm. um, so that's it. I had lots of opportunities to be exposed to various careers. And, and I think my path worked out well for me. Yeah, I think so too. What did it mean for you to be studying science in an all black space, sort of like this utopia for Black intellectuals? So, you know, I've never had that question, but as I think about it, um, that wasn't my first experience. So remember I told you every summer I went to Xavier University and all the kids there were Black. All the, um, all the uh, teachers, for lack of a better word, were um, Black college students who were all in medical school or college. And so I had that experience really early. Mm -hmm. right in high school um, and seeing so I had role models achieving in college and medical school who were talking to us so that's really the importance of participating in these exposure and pipeline programs because early on it was presented to me as a as as an opportunity or a possibility I, I had no doubt that I could not achieve it because I'd seen other people do it and were doing it and we had other um, folks come back who took those programs and speak to us. We had other physicians come talk to us that looked just like me. So I felt um, empowered and supported early on. Mm -hmm. So moving into Spelman, you know, that was a, a different, um, it wasn't different. It was just um, it, uh, evolving, right? Because then I was around uh, women who were all women in black women majority who were aspiring to do similar things. Mm -hmm. right and had the attitude and aptitude to be great right so um i was in light company so it, there wasn't to me there wasn't room for doubt if that's what you wanted to do and then you had like-minded people around you it, to me it made it easier mm -hmm. um I, I i don't ever really feel that i was in a space where i was made to feel that i couldn't do what i wanted to do um and maybe that's a that's a, a unique opportunity 
And I recognize that, that that's not everybody's experience, mm -hmm. uh, but it was certainly mine. And I was able to capitalize on that. Moving into Morehouse, Morehouse was a little bit more diverse. It was not an all black, Morehouse School of Medicine was um, not an all black institution, what um, was majority, but, but still even, um, even there, I felt the same level of support. I saw people that looked like me running the school. I mean, you know, so it wasn't, again, any doubt. And I think as I moved, you know, it was a little bit of a different story as I moved over to Emory because I was a predominantly white institution. And even though we took care, we worked in hospitals that, predomin that predominantly took care of people that looked like us, the people teaching us were not the same as the people, you know, we were taking care of. So that was probably a different transition and having to learn in that space was a little different. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about your experience going from these black spaces into Emory? So the first thing I'll say is I wasn't uncomfortable because there was still lots of people, lots of black people, other, you know, every kind of people around. It's just that in terms of the, the hospital, who was working in the hospital, um, so I didn't feel alone. And that's very much um, um, a lot of people's story of being the only one. And even within my program, uh, in the residency program, within the residency faculty, uh, we had, we had a, at that time, a, a fairly you know, respectable representation of African-American physicians, and which was kind of unheard of. We were kind of a um, trailblazer in that. Uh, being able to attract folks because we're in Atlanta. Um, there's lots of folks around. So people like to come to Atlanta. And uh, so I, I had the fortune of being exposed early again to not just emergency medicine physicians, but emergency medicine physicians that look like me. Mm -hmm. um, so I had, once again, I had that support. Again, that's not everybody's story. And that doesn't mean that everyone can't um, succeed. Um, I think that that was just part of my story. Were there times where, you know, I felt doubt in myself or um, maybe felt unfairly judged? I'm sure there were. I, I, I'd like to be able to say, I remember this one incident, but I really don't have too many, mm -hmm. really one or two that influenced me so much or were, were such an impression that I would keep talking about it. Mm -hmm. I think for the most part, I had a very positive um, experience. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I think that I helped probably impress upon others that their experience with having a black student, black resident that maybe they were not exposed to, right? Mm -hmm. So I was sort of trailblazing it a little bit or part of that aspect of exposing other people and, and helping them to view people differently. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really looking forward to going to Spelman because I've been in predominantly white spaces my whole life. And so to be in a space where I'm just empowered and supported in ways I haven't been and challenged in ways I haven't been challenged before, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, I think lots of people just like you there. Yes. So many of my friends, like my whole friend group that I've met already is just full of science people, engineering, pre-meds, mm -hmm. um, people that want to do research and stuff like that. So that's been super exciting mm -hmm. um, because at my current school, they try to discourage black girls from even challenging themselves in math and science. Mm -hmm. And so I've been working so hard to sort of challenge that narrative that black girls are only meant to take the lower level courses and they can't um, challenge themselves. So 
that's been something I'm super passionate about at school now. So it's nice to hear that in the next few years, I'm gonna be in the same place where you are, where I feel empowered. I feel like I can do anything. And even those moments of doubt later on, I know how to overcome them because I've had that backbone of- Well, I mean, you have it now, you just probably don't realize it. Yeah. Um, so just, yeah, keep moving forward. Yeah. So my next question for you would be, what is, how would you describe what it's like being a Black woman physician in a field that is still very much predominantly white and male? Uh, I don't know. I hate to say it feels normal because unfortunately that's, that's sort of the narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, in a lot of special, in almost all specialties, really the most place, the, the place where you'll find the most women physicians is in um, pediatrics. And, you know, some of the latest data from the AAMC shows that, you know, over the past 10 years, we sort of caught up at the level of medical school applicants around how many people, um, the ratio. So it's about 50-50 or uh, if not, um, maybe a little bit more women applicants. Um, but as you matriculate through, um, you know, it, it's still, um, the gap widens um, as you move into residency and then on into, you know, faculty, um, specifically in academic uh, statistics. Um, so how does it feel to be a black woman? Well, you know, again, I think that I have a, a, a really good foundation of um, self-confidence um, in, in support and role models. So everything that I thought that I could be, I've seen it done or seen other people do it. So I knew I could do it. And, and I think that that's a big component of your self-development is seeing and knowing other people who are in those roles. Um, you have to learn the game. And I had the benefit of, again, other folks helping me to recognize, you know, here's, if you're one of, you know, the folks in the room, you're the only one that looks like you, you're going to have to uh, maybe in some ways make extra efforts to connect or be in the know. Mm -hmm. um, it's not gonna be comfortable for them to kind of casually discuss things with you. Um, and you have to understand that things get handled not just around the table in a meeting. Mm -hmm. Things get handled in side conversations, social conversations, and you may not be invited or, and it's not because they don't want you there, it's just, you're not thought about in that context, right? And so when they're in that context, there's other things discussed and you're left out. So you have to step out of your comfort zone um, in some of those cases in order to succeed. But well, you know, one of the other, other things is to really just have a really good sense of self and confidence in self. Recognize things when they're happening, um, know who your allies are and, um, you, you, and you know, you, you may have to pick and choose your battles to a certain extent. Um, there is, but everybody has a, has a line drawn in the sand around whatever they deal with. And you just have to understand how to negotiate that. And that comes with, again, um, support, mentorship, um, empowerment, and really self-confidence. So all of those things work together and what, whatever one's coming forward first is situational. Mm -hmm. I definitely think mentor, mentorship is super, super important and exposure. Um, and we've talked a lot about that today. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you think our representation matters um, 
in the medical field? Well, so I very, I, I very much um, support and want to amplify that the what has actually just played out in in the data in that people do better in terms of their medical care adherence and treatment when they are cared for by someone they that looks like them. And that is just, it's really about um, trust, familiarity, cultural competency, just, just those things. It's not, it's not always everyone's opportunity to be cared for by someone that looks exactly like them. And that doesn't mean that the person caring for you can't take good care of you. Mm -hmm. um, it's about whether that person understands that if they don't look like you, how do they cross that, that barrier, make that connection? with you. And, and the first part is they have to recognize that they're different <laughs> and own that and own whatever biases or experiences they have with someone who doesn't look like them and how they play out in their interaction and really be intentional about learning about the folks that you take care of. Mm -hmm. If there's specific things you need to know, you know, from a, from a cultural standpoint, that's really important. But people, people connect better and they do better. And it doesn't mean that they don't like or don't prefer or don't distrust. It's just a familiarity thing. Mm -hmm. um, and if, if you understand that and that's genuinely what it is, then that is applicable to, to everyone, um, mm -hmm. not just our you know uh, patients of color. Mm -hmm. So could you cite any personal encounters you've had with health disparities, whether that be through things you've seen in residency or patients you've met or things like that? Uh, so specifically, I, I, I have to maybe, maybe I'll stumble through it as I think out loud because <laughs> um, I can't say I have any like teed up frame stories. Mm -hmm. You know, my experiences has mostly been, I've, I've has been either witnessed, witnessed bias interactions, mm -hmm. um, uh, witness biased decision making, um, and you know, then there's there's plenty of literature that it, that speaks to the existence. So, health disparities have been described. So that's not really anything we have to prove out. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's just a, it's just an awareness. And you know, what the pandemic did was really, I think it 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 amplified what was already going on because we've been talking about health disparities. Really, my medical school president at the time, Dr. Lewis Sullivan, um, and then also Dr. Satcher, they they were talking about this since the eighties, you know, and trying to put policy in place to address it. And you know, Healthy People two thousand was the result of their work in the in the strategic federal positions that they held to try to amplify that. But here we are, and we're talking about Healthy People twenty thirty. And we still have it closed gaps. I think we're doing better, but not not nearly at the rate that we need to. Mm -hmm. And so now we have the COVID pandemic, and you know what that has done is it's just been a unique time um, where the world was paused. There was unfiltered exposure to information, and the realization. And because of that, I think there's the realization that this is occurring. It's, it's in your face and now you actually have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. 
mm -hmm. right? Whether that's emotion, however you needed to deal with it, you can't tap out. There's plenty of people knew this was going on, but they could tap out, yeah. right? Or they could they could turn an eye, a blind eye, but now you can't. Mm -hmm. And so it's so it's happening. And what I worry about is, you know, I think a little bit about what everybody worries about is we're in a pandemic emergency response to do something. But these things, there's so many other disease processes besides COVID that require this type of response that hasn't happened for quite some time. And so, you know, we have to be really intentional. And I think that there's emotional um, connection um, to some extent, improve political will. Uh, but, you know, where the rubber meets the road is, is the financial support and resource support. Mm -hmm. And that, that hasn't happened yet to the degree, the, the degree needs to, to really make meaningful change. I think we're still in just sort of like, still little tiny baby steps moving things forward. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I'm seeing how some subspecialties that I think are important are still determined by insurance as elective or not urgent or seeing people in the hospital having to pay out of pocket for really important um, attention that they need. So I've definitely noticed that myself. Um, and I hope that eventually we can expedite this process of closing gaps. And I hope that when I get to become a physician officially, I can work to help close those gaps myself. So yeah, and you know, it's going to take more than just the physicians to do it, right? We had we had some traction with the um, the uh, ACA um, reform that President Obama instituted. That was huge, a huge step forward. Yeah, um, you know, and, and a number of things got repealed because it was a financial package around really getting to healthcare as a right and not a privilege. Mm -hmm. And and when you move in that direction, there's still a price tag. It's just a matter of, is it shared? How is it redirected? And that still was not selling well with, with all Americans. I'll just say that. <laughs> yeah. But we have, we have, uh, we still have a lot of work to do. Yeah. This is not the story in other countries. Yeah. I mean, that's not to say that they don't have health disparities. But access is not, is a is a sort of a different issue. Yeah, it's still access issues, but it's different. <laughs> so definitely, I'm very much against private insurance. I think that they like we've given insurance companies way too much power to determine what people need and don't need, and then that's where gaps happen, and people who can't necessarily afford things that they need are left in the dark. And then we just keep going through this cycle of limiting people to what they need. Yeah, which you have to remember that, you know, the federal government is an insurance company too. Mm -hmm. And they have self-selected into who they choose to, to support. And, uh, and actually is the largest insurance company in, in the country, right? Medicare in, is, the lar is the largest one. So they really do dictate a lot of what, what happens. But um, you know, if you're not 65 and above, you don't even get to take advantage of that. Yeah. And, and even though there is a Medicaid program that takes care of a different cohort of patients, um, it's still not, it's still, there's a lot of people caught in the middle 
that don't have care where private insurance steps in and, and it's a privilege and not a right. So, so it's, um, it it's gonna take policymakers, it's gonna take people voting, it's gonna take everyone working together to really decide what we want the future to look like as well as healthcare providers. Absolutely. Um, so we already got into the pandemic a little bit, um, but like we were saying earlier, since the pandemic has forced the world to recognize these inequities in healthcare and other aspects of society, how do you see yourself in the midst of this? And what are some other steps that we can take to start to close these gaps? So I'll talk about others first and then I'll talk about maybe some of the things that I have been doing. Okay. So I'm very inspired by, you know, this, the, the current young generation, and we'll say the able generation. So your teenagers to young adults who are really, you know, taking it upon themselves to lead change and um, unapologetically so. And, and because you, this, this generation is growing up with a different frame of mind, a different uh, act, different access to information. Um, their, their tolerance and acceptability is completely different, mm -hmm. right? But what, what, is diff, what is the challenge, I should say, is that there's still multiple generations who have experienced life differently that are still alive, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have to work through all those generations. But I think the younger generation is the burning is, is keeping the platform burning, I should say, around tolerance, acceptability, diversity, inclusiveness, all of those things. I think you have the middle generations who, who recognize that it is important and we have to do something about it because it's not just the right thing to do, it actually makes sense to do it. Mm -hmm. And then you still have folks who really just would do it just because they, it's the right thing to do, but you need more than that um, to really make change. So what I would say is the, the fact that you are using your voice in a podcast, um, or if there's folks who are writing, those are folks who are expressing themselves through art and music. Um, there are some who are getting into political activism early um, and stepping up in leadership roles um, and even leveraging leadership and platforms within their, their um, span of influence. All of those little things add up and are important building connections and finding like-minded affinity groups to drive agendas. All of that is important and necessary work in the way things have always been done, but it's, you know, it's, well, what are the new topics? Where, where do we have to go? And how do we hold people accountable in new ways? So we have social media, which is a new way to hold people accountable. We have unfiltered video, <laughs> you know, and video is everywhere. Um, in your pocket, on the lamppost, and in places that you don't even know that you're being watched. And so, um, you know, the, the call for change and the uh, demonstration of proof or evidence is, is available in ways that it didn't used to be. Mm -hmm. And so how do you leverage that information? So to me, that's the power of the younger generation in terms of moving change and some of the things that really still have to be leveraged. So what have I, what have I been doing in response to COVID or you know, that has changed sort of my uh, interest activity in terms of health equity. And so I'll say a lot, a lot has changed. Um, 
where I found myself in, in participating in the response um, to COVID. So I don't just take care of patients in the emergency department. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, that's a smaller part of my job at this point. I'm a physician leader and I am a chief quality officer for my hospital, which puts me in a, uh, at various leadership uh, uh, tables within my own hospital, my healthcare system. So participating is in senior, senior leadership um, put me in a, a position to, to actually step up and, and, and take charge of something, I'll just say. And so what I had done, I'm also on the board of Emory Healthcare. And um, as, a, as a board member with another board member, we stepped up and took on what is the community response to COVID-19 and how it's impact, disproportionately impact, impacting black and brown communities. Um, and how do we address that disparity? And what is Emory doing, you know, Emory doing about it? And so that was some of the work that I found myself in. And a lot of that strategy was around coalition building. It was around um, reaching out and working with um, people who had the data, who you have to leverage data to know where you need to go to be impactful. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, having that, what were, you know, some of the, what, what do you have available to you uh, for significant and meaningful interventions? And for us, it was really battling disinformation. So as expert, healthcare experts, that's what we did and, and leveraged the trust of um, healthcare providers that looked like the community and giving those messages. Because we had messages, we had no messaging, we had wrong messages, we had discordant messages. We just, you know, it just wasn't a unified voice that people felt trusted. So we were trying to step into that void um, early. And then along comes, you know, the amplification of racial injustice through our, you know, street news teams, right? You know, unfiltered video in your pocket exposed the world to things that lots of communities have been dealing with for quite, for a long time. But now everybody has to deal with it because guess what? I can put it on YouTube and it can go viral and then the news stations pick it up and they have less and less filters these days. And so everybody can see reality now, which was not the case 40 something years ago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, now you add on racial inequities and racially driven injustices as part of the conversation. And so here we are having to lead um, and help people through, through new, not new conversations, but conversations that they really can't step away from. And so how do we help people navigate that considering what's going on? And so moved into having a lot of those conversations, participating in that type of awareness and education, as well as doing the work to actually help people, which was the community outreach and interventions. And so that's a lot of what I have been doing. And, and then as a quality leader, really framing up is the, is the, is the type of care that we are giving um, equitable. And who do we need to work with? What other environmental, socioeconomical factors that we need to um, address that will help make our patients more successful outside of our care, right? Because you should be able to take care of yourself by yourself and live your best healthy life. That's what health equity is. And, you know, we, we have a role in being able to influence whether or not we being healthcare um, as, a, as a system or a structure have a role in um, really making sure that that can happen among other structures who have a role in that. 
you know, mm -hmm. education and housing and all the like. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm spending time really thinking through and trying to figure out how can I meaningfully contribute from my position of influence mm -hmm. um, around making things better in that space. Wow, that's really inspiring to me. How, what has been the most rewarding part about being a physician leader? Well, lately, my most rewarding thing is that I just got promoted to professorship. So that's like, I'm elated about that. Congratulations. Um, that was, thank you very much. That was a big um, achievement. But even more so because I'm still probably one of a handful of Black women emergency physicians that are at a professor role in the country. Um, so, you know, even though that's a great achievement, what that is, is a bigger responsibility to, to, to lift as you climb, right? So. Um, how do I help bring on the next generation uh, or the next, you know, round of folks? Um, and there's plenty out there who are doing fabulous things. It's just how do we bring everyone along? Um, but, you know, I really, I enjoy what I do. I, um, going back to knowing yourself and uh, your specialty, specialties in medicine are unique for a reason. They require unique personalities because the job has unique, um, or I should say has nuances. So for emergency medicine, I tell people, um, you have to be very comfortable talking to strangers who are in distress and making and being able to gain their trust in a matter of minutes um, and being respectful where they will be transparent and bear their soul really to you um, and making them feel comfortable about that. That's a very vulnerable position that patients are in that you take care of more so than just like a regular checkup, right? Where, um, where most of the time a regular checkup, you feel okay. You're just, you know, making sure things are in order as opposed to if you're going to use the emergency department, there's something on your mind that you think is wrong. Yeah. Even if your level of what is wrong is different from what I think your level of what is wrong is, it doesn't matter. You think something's wrong. Mm -hmm. So there's a different level of stress in your decision to come to the emergency department. The second thing, or I should say another thing that you have to be comfortable with is you have to be comfortable with detaching. So I am all in, in my encounter with you, that might not, may last for minutes to hours. But then after that, I don't ever see you again. I don't check on you. I'm on to the next person. And so you have to be okay with that. Mm -hmm. And and there's in a lot of the specialties that we have, they 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 require that you continue to manage the story of the patient, and that's not what that's not what emergency physicians do. We are acute care. We are what you need in the moment, um, and then we move we move you to the next person that is the right person for you. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have you have to be okay with that. You have to be able you have to be okay with uh, not knowing. Um, you may not have all the information, but you have to make the best decision with the information that you have. And that's not comfortable for people sometimes. They really wanna do research. They wanna look into every little detail. They wanna weigh possibilities. And people who think that way, there is a role for them in medicine, mm -hmm. okay? Um, but that's generally not what the emergency physician is doing because your decision-making is time-sensitive mm -hmm. and you don't, you don't always have that um, opportunity. 
So you have to make the best, you have to be comfortable making decisions with the amount of information you have in the moment. Um, what else? And so again, so these are, these are just characteristics, right? You know, a brain surgeon has to be, is a whole different personality, right? And that person can tell you what is really important about them. They have to be meticulous. They have to be able to look in small spaces and hold a position. You know, that's just the tactical part. But, you know, there's, there's, just, there's just different things you have to be okay with in different specialties. And really the only way you learn that is learning what, who, who look at the people who go into those specialties. What is their life like? Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I like to do a lot of different things. I don't need to do the same thing all the time. That's attractive to me that I can walk in and not know the answer. It's a puzzle to me and I try to solve it. Um, and that's not to say that that's not what medicine is in general, but I started with like no information mm-hmm. right, or very little. And then I get more and I, it's an investigation as opposed to, you know, the starting point for everyone else might be they have a lot of information and they're still just trying to get to the answer. So it's just a different starting point. Um, I remember that's one thing I did not like when I was rotating in the hospital is when my resident leader would say, okay, go downstairs and admit the patient with pneumonia. I was like, oh, don't tell me they have pneumonia. I wanted to figure it out. You know what I mean? So like that bothered me. And, and the fact that I could walk in a room and not know what's wrong with you until you started telling me things and me starting to think through, well, what could it be? What could it be? And I get, I'm the first person who gets the first pass as what's wrong in that situation. I like that. So that was attractive to me. Definitely that critical thinking, that problem solving is something that I really love doing. So that's really exciting. Um, So if you could give your younger self a piece of advice before embarking on this journey to emergency medicine, what would you tell her? I would say, any opportunity to expose yourself to different things, make sure you capitalize on it because all of those experiences you bring with you into your next, you know, your next life and whether that's your career or anything else. And, and, and it's not to say that I was not afforded lots of opportunities, whether that's travel, meeting people, learning new things. Um, could I have done more perhaps? Um, and if I look back, I wish I had done more, right? And it's not, you know, some of it I could do. <laughs> uh, you just can't do everything at once, but, but just don't, don't be apprehensive. I would just tell really anyone, you know, do everything as much as you can handle because you will, some part of that will teach you something about yourself you didn't know. Um, it'll let you know what you're capable of and maybe not capable of or what you're interested in and really not interested in. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that would be my advice. Look at every experience as as an opportunity. I definitely agree with that. Um, I always tell students that I tutor and mentor that they need to just try as many things as possible. Um, And I think that being willing to try new things brings you to new passions you didn't think that you would be interested in before. Um, So definitely embracing new experiences is something that I'm looking forward to doing in my collegiate chapter. Um, So earlier we were talking about um, the pandemic and how it's led our course of action. 
Um, and you were talking about um, how you were inspired by Gen Zers and millennials who are taking charge and using their tools and their platforms to push knowledge forward. But um, I wanted to ask you, how can young people like myself continue to advocate for health equity um, in our communities? Um, so the first thing is really understand your community. Do you know your community, uh, where you live? And, um, and maybe where you live is okay, and, but there's plenty of other communities that are not okay. Mm -hmm. Understand how, you know, understand why your community is okay and someone else is, isn't. Um, so that, that would be the first step. And then learn about, well, well what is available right now? Who's, who's doing what? Whether that's providing resources for food, who is advising on legal, you know, decisions to help improve people's situations. Um, how can you help just, you know, I think there's a big need for people to be navigators. There's just a lot of people that just don't know how to do stuff. And it's not because they don't want to do it or, you know, they just seem to, it just seems harder. People just need a little help. They need, they need navigation. Um, but, you know, the hard part is, is also people have to be willing to accept help. And that's part of the prop challenge as well. Um, so, so understand where you are in those spaces. Do you understand your community? Do you know what's going on? Do you know what's already out there? And then what are the, what are the gaps? Where can, you, where can you step in and make, make a difference? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's your time, sometimes it's your talent, sometimes it's your treasure, right? And you just have to understand what's needed, what you're able to do at that time. And sometimes it's your leadership or your voice. Um, sometimes it's your presence. Um, so it's situational. So it's just about understanding what's going on, being aware. And I, and I honestly think you guys are more aware. I have, I have children your age. And so I'm, I'm constantly impressed around, you know, what they're aware of. Um, and I think it's just a function of how you guys are exposed to information, how you, um, uh, how you want to receive information and um, then how you leverage it. So it's very different. Yeah, absolutely. And now that all of this information is at our fingertips with the advent of social media, it's so easy to start to get involved and think about who's around you. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely been a super helpful tool for me. Um, so thank you so much for coming on today. I've learned so much from you in just an hour. Um, I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And good luck in your studies. Oh, and the other thing I will say is, you know, when you go into college, you need to have all the fun you can. Okay. You need to get your work done though. Yes. But, but you should have as much fun as you can because that's, that's what that is. It's for you to expand and stretch, mm -hmm. but it's, you know, again, there's, it's also learning that responsibility too. So I really encourage that. College was fun. Medical school was fun. Some people were like, oh my gosh, it was so stressful. I had a great time in medical school. And I think it's because it's what I wanted to do too. So yeah, it is what it is. And you definitely chose the right school for you. I think what happens is a lot of people don't choose the right fit because they do what someone else wants them to do and not what they want to do. So they end up not enjoying their time. So Yes, that's a that's a huge, a huge factor um, is you have to find what fits for you. Go visit, talk to the people, 
And unfortunately, there's fits for people, but they have other constraints that prevents them from the right fit. And, you know, sometimes we have to make those sacrifices to, to get to the end point. And we understand that. But if you, have, if you don't have that challenge, really make an, an intentional decision around what is, is the fit for you, especially in medical school. It's not always about the rank and file. It's about where will you be supported and where will you thrive. Definitely. And that takes a lot of introspection. Um, that's what I've learned through this college process. Like just thinking about what do I need? What have I been missing in my high school and middle school and elementary school experience that I need in my college experience? Um, and thinking about where I'm going to have the most fun. And am I choosing this place because I want to go to this place or because someone's telling me that I need to? Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that I came to Spelman on my own. Um, and my mom was super happy for me. A lot of people thought because, oh, well, like that's her alma mater. Of course she's going to yeah. be happy, but she was more so happy because I came to it on my own and it Absolutely. wasn't my aunties accosting me about Spelman is my only option. It was me realizing that it really was the option for me, the only place for me. So. Yep. Yeah. You'll enjoy it even more just because of that. <laughs> I'm so excited. We move in. August 10th. Um, so my summer is cut short, but it'll definitely be fun. So I'm not. That's why you probably are used to starting school in September. Yes, we start after Labor Day normally. So this will be different. Um, it'll be hot now because we're starting in summer. But luckily, I'm in LLC, the air conditioned dorm. Don't have to worry about hot Atlanta. <laughs> oh, it's still going to be hot, but you'll be okay. <laughs> I'm looking forward to meeting new people from all over because what I'm realizing is that even though it is um, an all black school, there's black people are so diverse and black people are coming from literally everywhere. Mm -hmm. Rural South, rural North, other countries. So I'm looking forward to getting to know everyone and understanding everyone's background. Yep, yep, you'll have a great time. <laughs> I'm so excited and for homecoming too. Okay, let me get off my soapbox, but thank you so much for coming on today. Um, and I look forward to meeting you in person, hopefully when I get down to Georgia. Absolutely. I really enjoyed our discussion. You take care, okay? Okay, you too. All right, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.